I'm Mark Rotterman, and this is Front Row. Coming up, the panel reflects on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Governor Cooper vetoes the donor privacy law, and President Biden pivots to the economy. Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Donna King, Editor-in-Chief of Carolina Journal. Morgan Jackson, Chief Political Strategist for Governor Cooper. Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11. And Nelson Dollar, Senior Advisor and North Carolina Speaker of the House. Jonah, why don't we begin with your thoughts on the anniversary of 9-11, the 20th anniversary? Well, it's a day in infamy for a whole new generation of Americans. And look, I never lived through Vietnam. I certainly wasn't there for World War II. Um, but what I remember is the unity of America, and I remember the patriotism. I remember the thunderous applause and just the passion of, of, of Congress when they met on September 20th when President Bush spoke. And he says, normally in the course of events, a president comes here to report on the State of the Union. And he says, tonight, no such statement is needed. The state of our union is strong. And that reverberated. And what I wonder is, if God forbid there's another 9-11 attack, is the country capable of coming together again like that? Or would we immediately start blaming the other side? Well, you did this, this president did that. How could it have happened? I don't remember that in the immediacy after 9-11. And there were plenty of reasons to blame the Clinton administration, the Bush administration. There were plenty of things that, that went wrong in the intelligence, the FBI, the CIA. But that came later in the 9-11 Commission. At first, after 9-11, it was unity. It was grief. I mean, we're still in a pandemic where 600,000 Americans lost their lives and Americans can't really come together. So I hope I'm wrong, but that's my fear, is that if, God forbid, another attack comes okay. like this, how do we respond as a nation? Donna, you have the floor. I think that's a legitimate question, and we have something we really have to think about, because today, on this 20th anniversary, the Taliban will be celebrating from a Black Hawk helicopter, because the Biden administration left them in Air Force. You know, uh, President Bush said then, 20 years ago, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And today, we left Americans, we left Afghan allies, we left service dogs, we have left... Uh, an entire Air Force to the Taliban, and that's what they remember. This is now the legacy of 9-11, part of it. It's also the legacy of the Biden administration. There were a lot of inspiring stories that, that day, though, Morgan. There were. First responders, uh, the, the fire department in New York, the police department in New York gave us all something to look forward and to. And heroes People, on those planes. Heroes on those planes, especially the one headed to Pennsylvania. And... You know, we, we, I think everybody's been glued to the television watching a lot of the remembrances, and there's a number of different stations that are doing remembrances. The, watching people, the video from time of running towards the towers, not just, I mean, obviously our first responders, our fire department, uh, and our police officers, 
but folks running towards the towers to help. And uh, Jonah, you know, you, you struck a chord with me when you said that because I think about that in, I think it's been 20 years. We haven't had a, a, a opportunity in 20 years. Uh, not an attack, but a, a coalescing. I mean, right. think about you had George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton immediately g come together to raise money for 911. You had all the Hollywood stars, right and left, get together. Musicians immediately do a concert for America. You had everybody hand in hand. I, re I remember the Tom Daschle big hug of George Bush on the floor and kissed him on the cheek. And that showed that we were in this together. And I, I do worry about where we are. But the last quick point I'll make, Mark, is I also think back to that time. What if we'd have known then that we were going to be in Iraq right. for eight years and Afghanistan for 20 years? What would we have done differently? Did we take our eye off the ball, Nelson, when we went into Iraq, when George W. went into Iraq? Well, we did. So 9-11 actually capped a decade uh, of attacks and intelligence failures by the U.S. government, failing to put together the pieces, failing to listen to agents like John O'Neill, who lost his life at the Twin Towers. So we go to Afghanistan for revenge. We fail to get bin Laden at Tora Bora, and we immediately turn that mission into nation building and switch over and go to war in Iraq. So five presidents, 30 years of really failed policy that resulted in the loss of too many lives, both here in America, as well as service personnel overseas. And here's one of the kickers, Mark. Uh, this fall, the um, 20 years after 9-11, uh, the mastermind of the attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, is only now finally coming Still to court. Still hasn't been brought to justice. Okay, I want to come finally right come back to, to you and talk about the General Assembly's week. Yes, sir. Mark, this week, uh, Governor Cooper uh, vetoed a bill, uh, Senate Bill 636, and that is a law designed to protect private property or private rights of charitable donors uh, from having their uh, personal information disclosed to agencies and officials. Uh, state and federal campaign finance and tax disclosure laws are still, would still be in effect, uh, but what this bill would do was to make sure that if, if you're a charitable donor, um, your private information is not going to be used for other other purposes or to out you. Uh, this veto was disappointing because it really does involve protecting the freedom of speech and association. The U.S. Supreme Court this, this past summer recently overturned a California law who actually sought to disclose uh, nonprofit donors uh, to conservative groups, but also groups like the ACLU, the NAACP, and the Human Rights Campaign also opposed that California law. The Supreme Court overturned that. Uh, and it really goes back to a landmark decision uh, in uh, NAACP ver versus Alabama that involved the civil rights movement. And even today, we're still worried about making sure we protect charitable donors from harassment and discrimination. Morgan, you have the floor. you got to weigh in here. The governor views this as a transparency issue, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, I think the governor's very clear. What we need is more transparency, not less transparency. Uh, there are plenty of protections for nonprofits and their donors at this point. Uh, the governor, at the minimum, this was a bill that was unnecessary. At the maximum, it shielded uh, a lot of folks who are using, uh, using sort of backdoor efforts through nonprofits to fund either lobbying campaigns, dark money, dark money to influence public policy, or to, to divert money into influence elections. And I think, again, at the minimum, it's unnecessary. At the maximum, it provides dark money, a, a less sunlight. And that's a bad idea. We need more transparency, not less. Jonah, what have you been uh, following? Well, 
The criminal reform bill, I know it was passed a couple weeks ago, but that was just bipartisanship that came together to kind of bring uh, this task force for racial equity. And I don't think that that was kind of celebrated enough. I mean, Governor Cooper brought together mayors and sheriffs and basically people on the right and left to kind of give these recommendations. And this criminal justice reform bill, I mean, it really did for the first time bring we talk about transparency, kind of the first time to how we're going to hold police officers accountable, uh, a tracking system for behaviors and things like that. Um, that's the kind of bipartisanship and momentum we want to see in the budget. Whether that happens uh, is yet to be seen. Okay, Donna. So another uh, piece of legislation, again, going to transparency and sunlight. Uh, the Senate passed a bill that would require the executive office, Governor Cooper in this case, to consult with the elected council of state in order for a state of emergency to go past a week. Uh, of course, we're now into, you know, almost two years of a state of emergency in North Carolina, and the governor's gotten some criticism because the elected council of state feels like they haven't had the chance to really weigh in. So this bill would limit it. It would require who, the, whoever's in that executive mansion to go to the council of state and get approval to reveal what's going on, why are we in a state of emergency, and create a more transparent collaborative process. Okay, I want to move on. President Biden Morgan moved to the economy this week. He pivoted. Absolutely. Listen, September is going to be a big month for the economy. Uh, for, you've got several major pieces of legislation that are in discussion and potentially moving. First of all, we've talked about a lot on the show, the Biden infrastructure plan that has passed the Senate. We believe that is going to pass the House this month. Nancy Pelosi slated it to move forward. $1.2 trillion, I think it $1. is. $1.2 trillion. This is something that, that will infuse a tr over a trillion dollars into the economy and create two million jobs a year. Uh, it, it's a really big deal and has incredible support, bipartisan support. It obviously passed the Senate with a, Mitch McConnell even voted for it in the Senate. 18 Republicans, I 18 think. 18 Republicans, so we're going to see that pass. The second piece is the domestic spending bill. There's been a lot of discussion about the domestic spending bill, and let's talk about what it actually is. It is uh, incentives and investments in child care, in paid family leave, in community college tuition, uh, affordable housing, a number of things that are ultimately designed to create a more highly skilled workforce long term. We see how investments in pre-K and child care really impact somebody's education over over their career. And social infrastructure. So, it's social infrastructure. It's, it's sort of a soft infra infrastructure plan. There's a lot of debate and discussion about what the price tag should be. But here's what we know. Regard, I think they're going to work out the price tag because it is so. The program itself is immensely popular. Not only is the Biden infrastructure plan overwhelmingly popular with the majority of Americans, so is a domestic uh, spending plan. And so it's a matter. Listen, is it going to be three and a half? Is it going to be one, uh, one and a half uh, a trillion as far as the spending? I think that's ultimately. I think we're going to find a deal on that. I don't know what the number is, but I think we're going to find yeah, a deal. Yeah, Pelosi's indicated that she'd deal on this. And, I, and Manchin is, wants a pause on the $3.5 trillion, Nelson. But does, does Biden really have the muscle to put this through right now? Well, that's a question. And they certainly they have the votes and they can do it. Of course, I'm with Manchin. I think you need to slow this down. I mean, this turn from the optimism of last spring to Biden's winter of, of discontent. Inflation is on the rise. Uh, energy and food prices are up. Auto plants are actually closing right now because of lack of chips. If you're a store, you can't get the products in and you can't get anybody to help you sell them. 
so when you're talking about creating new jobs, we have set a record, 10.9 million jobs that are unfilled out there in the United States right now. We have a labor market that is in complete turmoil, and all the Biden administration wants to do is pass more trillions in spending, higher taxes, more entitlement programs, and Senator Manchin is right. Washington needs to slow down on the spending, the taxes, the debt, take stock of our situation. And I think that Biden's in real danger of losing public trust if these indicators continue. Biden needs a win, though, doesn't he, Donna? Uh, he does. I don't know if he'll find it here. I think that's really what matters is what the American people want. About 60 percent of, in a poll this week, 60 percent of Americans said they don't want to see a $3.5 trillion package. And, and to say the programs are immensely popular, the ideas are probably are not the spending. And, and with his his approval rating in the 30s, I think that he does not have the horsepower to get this through. Jonah, put this in context. Presidents are victims of circumstance. Is it really President Biden's fault that a Taiwanese chip company was closed because of the pandemic and that's why they can't produce and bring enough cars to the market? I don't know. That's up to the voter to decide. But I think that for whatever's going on in Afghanistan and the country, I mean, supply chain matters and whether the perception is it's the president's fault, well, that's where voters... Well, deficits matter anymore? We're at like $28 trillion. I don't think it's mattered in 20 years. I mean, this has been something that's gone on for a long time, not since Ronald Reagan, I think, has been deficits. But I mean, it's only used when they think it'd be used, but I, I just, that's one of those words I just don't think resonates with voters anymore. Close this out in about 40 seconds, my friend. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, listen, the, no Republican had a problem with the deficit when Donald Trump was president. Like, the fact that they're having a problem with the deficit now is, it well, smacks the politics. they haven't had a problem with the deficit. Nobody has. Listen, it, it's, it's a bigger problem. sometimes the bill problem. does come through, uh, do, doesn't it? It, it does, but it, it hasn't for 30 years, so I think we just keep on doing it. Okay, Don, I want to talk to you. Test scores are in for North Carolina students. Not yes, good. Not, it, it does not look good. The standardized test scores from last year, which, of course, as you remember, most, you know, the public schools were, were mostly remote uh, last year, and it does not look, it looks like about less than half of students tested to be at meeting grade level proficiencies. When you look at third grade, which is a critical year, uh, there are a little more than 25% are meeting the grade level proficiency. It's alarming. And Governor Cooper signed a bill uh, this week that gave a waiver to schools for the A through F performance rating for this year. But guess who doesn't get that waiver for performance rating students? So those kids who struggled through remote school for whatever reason, Wi-Fi, learning disabilities, just didn't do well in remote, those kids still have that grade from last year on their transcript. So two or three years from now, when they're applying to colleges against kids who were in person in private school, they're going to be competing with them. And it's something that the State Board of Education has the authority to uh, to help them find a path forward. Uh, what we did uh, waivers, pass fails the first year of the pandemic. So far, it looks like they're not interested in doing that this year. Parents are taking note because we all felt like the school system would make them whole. And right now they're not. Morgan, are the kids being penalized? You know, listen, I think it's been extremely challenging for students. Uh, Donna's right. It's it, everything from the lack of personal engagement and interaction with a teacher over Zoom. It's just it's a different or it's, it's just a different dynamic. Uh, the la lack of reliable Internet for a lot of students out there, the the lack of lack of reliable uh food every day for, for breakfast and lunch for some of these kids. And so, listen, I, I think what everybody's come to realize, and I think these scores really merit it out, is the importance of being in class. And I think one of the key things, and I know everybody doesn't want to talk about masks, but the, the, that's the importance of, that's the whole purpose of masks in schools. Look at, and I want to do a case in point, Union County right now, 
they're 15% of their entire school population is under quarantine because they won't have mask mandate. Wake County has four times as many students and one quarter of the students in, in uh, quarantine. And so listen, my, my point to folks about this is everybody agrees on this. We got to have kids in school. That's the way their test scores go up. That's the way they learn best. But we got to have masks to protect them. And it's clear, look at the data, masks work. The places that aren't wearing masks are under major quarantine. Union County is a real hot spot and a problem right now. Your take on this report, Nelson? Well, if you go back, I mean, hundreds of thousands of students um, are behind for no good reason. And it's going to take years for them to catch up. You know, I pick on Europe a lot, but Finland, Denmark, they got it right. Had, they had their schools back open in May of last year. European schools, on the whole, were open. They put the kids in there, even during the second wave of the pandemic uh, last fall. They certainly took the precautions like cleaning masks, smaller class sizes, educational bubbles. Their children didn't suffer the same level of, of uh, educational loss that our children have. Uh, as one Finnish expert put it, a child's educational right outweighs the health risk. And they were proven right on this. Very few students or teachers were ever uh, infected as a result of European schools being opened. Jonah. So you kind of just proved Morgan's point because Europe was using masks. They were doing all those precautions. Here, all the bickering kind of delayed all of that. Uh, I just want to say that I think there needs to be some onus as well on the parents. And when you have many families with two working parents, that's not a very stable home Great life. Point. So I think, yes, the schools, in-person, all of that. But let's not forget that there are many children who, if they're not well-fed at home, they're not going to be concentrating. If their parents are working and not home, they're not going to have the kind of structure that's important. And if, if those nurturing environments don't exist, doesn't matter what they're teaching in school. Wrap this up in about 20 seconds, Donna. I think it's hard to say that this is um, really on the parents because truthfully, I know that most of the parents that I know, at least here in Wake County, uh, were really engaged. They were taking time off work. They were having to spend their working hours looking over their kid's shoulder and helping them. It wasn't delivered well. That's the reality. Everybody had to pivot. Everybody had to create an entirely new school system in, in two weeks. And that's something that we weren't prepared to do. It wasn't delivered well. And now they have to help these kids, not just with remedial education, but help them because some of them are 18 months okay. from applying to college. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Donna. Oh, so my most underreported story of the week. <laughs> kind of passionate. Um, my most underreported story of the week actually is Afghanistan because I've seen a significant drop-off in our coverage of what's happening. And some of that is because communication is being cut off. But the Taliban instituted their new government. Um, women who were demonstrating against that it was all men in there were being whipped in the streets. Uh, you know, we've got a lot still going on there, and it feels a lot like the media has already forgotten. Well, has, uh, has the president turned a page on this? I think, think he's trying to. There's been a renewed focus on the economy, as we were talking about earlier. I don't know. It, it'll, I think for the most part that that's what's happening. You have a lot of people following his lead on trying to redirect attention, but there's a lot of people who Well, who I hope we don't forgotten. forget those 13 servicemen and women that died. Morgan? So underreported this week is correction officers. We've known this has been a generational issue, a challenge for funding uh, and salaries for correction, correctional officers. They're very low pay, very dangerous uh, work environments. Then you add COVID to that. Uh, in, in 2019, the vacancy rate had dropped to a, a modern day low of about 15%. Uh, throughout COVID, now it's 30% vacancy in state prisons. That's a real problem. Uh, I think 
you know, the governor put out in his budget uh, some real increases and some bonuses and different things. Incentives How's that for, being received? Uh, well, the House and Senate also did. And I, I think okay. there's broad agreement that we have to do something. That's one of the things as we talk about. There's not a lot of bipartisan agreement on corrections officers. There is. It's a, it's a challenge. And it is, again, it's not a one budget or two budget problem. It's a 30 year problem of underfunding correction officers. But when 30 percent of uh, the positions are vacant. That's a problem, guys. Okay, underreported, Jonah. As we think back to 9-11, I think it's important to recognize North Carolina's role. Flight 11, which was the first plane to leave Boston, go to Los Angeles, and slam to the North Tower, there's a flight attendant, Betty Ong. And from the back of the plane, she called an American Airlines Reservation Center. That reservation center was in Cary, and a woman named Vanessa Minter picked up that phone. That's where history starts. That's kind of remarkable to think about. Then, North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, New River, uh, you have Fort Bragg, of course, 82nd Airborne, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Between all of these posts, nearly 100,000 North Carolina-based troops fought in all those operations, enduring freedom, inherent resolve, new dawn, Iraqi freedom. Uh, and, and that needs to be recognized. And the Marines, uh, about 430 North Carolina-based Marines were lost in those conflicts, the most out of everyone, because they were on the front lines. Nelson? Uh, we know that rare earth elements are essential to the production of semiconductor chips that are found in every microelectronics device, from missiles to phones. Uh, but in the 1970s, the U.S. was actually the world leader in mining and processing these elements. We gave that leadership position up to China, who now controls over 70% of the world export market. We're trying to get it back. Um, Trying to get back in the game, the Mountain Pass Mine in California is being rejuvenated. It currently produces 15% of the world's rare earths. Other new mines are planned around the country in Brazil. Most important will be new processing facilities to extract the elements. Uh, rare earth production as well as microchip production are strategic to America's um, security and the economy. And Washington really needs to be focusing on those two issues with a Manhattan uh, project level commitment to the resources and sense of urgency. Great job. Let's go to the lightning round. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Okay, so I'm gonna say up is renters and property owners. The state Senate has passed a, a bill kind of streamlining the HOPE uh, uh, rental assistance program. There's still about $500 million to go out to folks who are having trouble making rent and making utility payments under this bill, then landlords with the renter's permission could apply for that assistance and people could, uh, it would also increase uh, eligibility to folks who are living in hotels or just need help with their utilities. So that's good news. Uh, Democrats are down. I think that they are, their chances of holding on to Congress in 2022 are tough uh, because historically the president's approval ratings are directly tied to the midterm results. And right now Biden is riding below Clinton and Obama going into the midterms. Morgan, you agree with that, that don't you? Yeah, 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 exactly. But above Trump, by the way. So uh, up this week, what I'm going to say is football fans, as a huge Chicago Bears fan, this is my favorite week of the football season. It's the only week we're undefeated, baby. Uh, <laughs> that probably will not last past Sunday. Uh, down this week, as, as we talk about 9-11 and the remembrances of 9-11, I have to say that while most Americans are spending their time uh, remembering 20 years ago, Former President Trump is providing color commentary on a boxing match. So n not a good look on 9-11. Who's up? Who's down this week? Broadway's back. That's starting September 13th. This was a dormant industry. and Have you got your tickets? Uh, not yet. I'm still sticking <laughs> around here. But I think it just reflects you had Broadway, you have the U.S. Open, you have college football, you have the NFL. 
Yes, we're getting back there, and it shows the vaccines work. It shows that people Normalcy, are... We're not there yet, though. It's, it, it's a process. Close. It's a process. Okay. I mean, when we're in the bubble, yes, I mean, it's been 20 months, but, like, it's only been 20 months. Okay. Uh, and who's down? Gavin Newsom, uh, governor of California, not looking good. Um, a, uh, most Californians who got their ballots not returning them. So I don't know necessarily what that means. We'll be talking about that next week. Who's up and who's down this week? Uh, Taiwan, according to a survey by the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, 69% of Americans actually support recognition of Taiwan as an independent country. 57% want a free trade agreement with them. 53% are in favor of signing a formal alliance. And 52% favor sending U.S. troops to Taiwan if China invades. So... Good for the Taiwanese. And they make lots of chips, by the way. Uh, who's down? Uh, Senator Maggie Hassan of uh, New Hampshire. A survey conducted by the New Hampshire Institute of Politics found the Democratic Senator, Senator trailing Republican Governor Chris Sununu, 40 to 49 percent, could be a key pickup for Senate Republicans in 2022. Donna, headline next week. Uh, soldiers returning from Afghanistan head home to Fort Bragg. The base is collecting donations uh, for welcome baskets as they return home, and they have wish lists posted on the base website and on Amazon. Headline next week. Uh, despite what Jonah thinks, Gavin Newsom survives a recall effort. To be continued. Headline next week. Oh, and I think it's going to be just a surprise. Whatever the, whatever the, re, whatever the result is, it'll be it's a surprise. It's a turnout election. Yeah, could okay. be. Okay. That's my headline. Headline next week. Well, this is a certainty. Natural gas prices continue to rise. What does that mean to the economy? I think it's good. Well, it means more production in the U.S. from the shale fields, but it also means rising consumer prices for a whole range of products, both your electricity as well as plastics and a range of things that, that uh, as well as uh, agricultural products. Great job, panel. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.